0: Section six of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two The Utilitarian Optimism of John Stuart Mill. Part three. This stands written in the Utilitarianism, for though that well known apologia has not convinced the world, it has defined the position of the apologist grant that he signally fails to reconcile psychological hedonism and utilitarian altruism grant that he may even be said to fail grotesquely in bridging the great gulf between the psychological asseveration that all human desire is as matter of fact desire for pleasure and the ethical demand that every individual is bound to pursue the happiness of mankind we may still carry from the pages of this perplexing treatise at least two affirmations of decisive significance. One is the statement, uncompromisingly explicit, that, as the world is at present constituted, the individual must be prepared to face the complete sacrifice of his own pleasures. The other, writ large in the lengthy chapter on the sanctions of the utilitarian principle, is the contention that human nature is capable of developing a social feeling, so deeply seated, a subjective feeling in one's own mind, he calls it with tautological emphasis, and so inseparably interwoven with social ideas, that it resists the dissolving power of all analysis, and can be broken through only on penalty of remorse. Nor does Mill leave us in any doubt that in comparison with this internal and indeed ineradicable feeling of obligation, the external sanctions, so prominent in Benthamism, are subordinate and ineffective. What thus appears in the philosophical treatise comes to light in still more memorable words spoken to Miss Fox at a time when a private sorrow had evoked his inmost thoughts. No one, he then said, should attempt anything to benefit his age, without at first making a stern resolution to take up his cross and bear it mill seems to have come to this conviction partly at any rate through what he calls the mental crisis of his life one of the most suggestive chapters in the range of autobiography he tells us that there came a time in his life it was at the end of his twentieth year when he put to himself the question whether if the end the public good for which he had hitherto been working were forthwith realized, the result would bring him personal happiness, and he adds that the answer he could not suppress was, no. Hitherto he had been laboring for the happiness of mankind with an industry, a cheerfulness, an optimism that was the envy and admiration of all who knew him. He had even been accustomed to felicitate himself on the certainty of a happy lot which he enjoyed through placing his happiness in something durable and distant. But somehow this shadow fell, and the thought of the public happiness lost its charm. It had not vanished, it had not even changed. It stood there, the same supreme object it had ever been, as clear as ever, perhaps clearer before the mental eye, But it was no longer happiness to think of it nor any happiness to pursue it the effects of this experience in alliance doubtless with other influences were permanent one was the conviction the so-called paradox of hedonism that to aim at personal happiness is not the way to attain it and the other A repudiation of the legacy of benthamism that mankind are not to be moved to public service save by touching them in their selfish interests not that he ever underrated the motive of self-interest he was still only too much his father's son to underrate the selfishness of men as they are just as little does he deny the value of the external sanctions always in his estimates of institutions justice enough is done to the value of the appeal they make to self-interest he remarks explicitly upon the folly of premature attempts to dispense with the inducements of private interest in social affairs nor is it to be forgotten that even when he is arguing for the depth and strength of his social sanction he hastens to affirm that it is not to be supposed that it is more than a minority in whom it is to be found yet even when every qualification is made, the step he took here was decisive. It cut the philosophy of reform loose from a theory of motive almost cynical in its selfishness. It carried the assertion that human nature is, at any rate, capable even of the cross. Need it be said that this is a vital point? It is ever a hard task to prove to the individual reformer that he will personally profit by public service it is hard even when the ends in view are near and certain it is impossible when these ends say the waging of a war the annexation of a dependency the reform of a landed system the organization of education are inevitably distant and precarious of achievement in all such cases the small fraction of personal pleasure that is expected to accrue to the individual reformer even when it is added to the larger fraction of pleasure which the hope of such reforms may already stir in the reformer's breast these though they are items not to be despised are not enough to move the will to resolute and unselfish action who is there who does not know how easy it is in the ordinary walks of life to let the mad world go its way who is there who has had experience of public work who does not know the sacrifices of time, care, money, attractions, which even the lesser social causes inexorably exact. It is not that sacrifices need to be in contradiction to the pursuit of personal good. There is a sense in which the sacrifice of life itself may be accepted as the greatest personal good for the person who makes it. But that is not the question here in issue, the benthamite doctrine is that the personal good that moves the will is ultimately personal pleasure this is its fatal weakness it is untenable as a result of psychological analysis and it is doubly untenable when it is offered as part of a philosophy for reformers who might well despair if the appeal to live and strive for public good is to be limited to the coincidences so hard to prove of sacrificing service and personal pleasurable satisfaction. Hence the magnitude of the debt of philosophical radicalism to Mill. He saw, as Mazzini on Carlyle saw, with still clearer eyes, that as the world is constituted, the hedonism of his teachers was impotent to justify and still more to evoke sacrifice. And in that conviction, he labored to deliver utilitarianism from the reproach that, as expounded by bentham and james mill it fastened upon the cause of reform the forlorn task of preaching an end nothing if not unselfish to a world constitutionally incapable of one genuine unselfish motive this is however no more than a first step even granting that human nature is capable of the cross it remains to establish the probability that human nature will soar to this altitude especially in view of the fact that, as we have abundantly seen, upon Mill's own showing, mankind as they are seem by no means minded to do so. Where are the influences to work the miracle, the miracle of transforming the rank and file of Mill's denunciations into the public-spirited democracy of his aspirations? Speaking broadly, it may be said that Mill's hopes for democracy lie along four lines these are legislation voluntary association education and individual vigour and self-assertion the main stress will be found to lie on the two last as regards legislation mill is too often popularly classified as an apostle of what huxley called administrative nihilism and carlyle the liberty of leaping over precipices in other words, of laissez-faire in its extremest form. This is a mistake. It was but half of the plan of the memorable Essay on Liberty to point out when and why society and government ought not to intervene. The other part of the plan, as Mill himself told George Grote, whose orthodoxy was greatly alarmed thereby, was to point out where it ought to, but did not intervene. And the latter part of this plan is so far from subordinate as to involve legal restraints on some of the most private affairs in life. Mill is for compulsory education, for legal prohibition of improvident marriages, and for legal restraint upon the domestic tyrants who would condemn their children to premature labour in the name of freedom of contract nor is this advocate of liberty at all averse to see the finger of the state in public works colonization charity hours of labour endowment of research it was not without reason therefore that he gave so much of his thought to the problem of the best form of government for government had upon his theory of its functions not a little to do it is here that mill's divergence from the manchester school is quite pronounced for in the attitude of bright and cobden to popular government there is always a peculiar reservation they are prepared of course like the staunch radicals they were to set the people in power but they are not minded to allow the people to be overactive in its exercise they present the democracy with a weapon beyond all price but the weapon is to be on no account produced too often they are eloquent over a wide franchise and equally eloquent in preaching the minimization of the government that is to rest upon it far otherwise with mill representative government was in his eyes a real and effective instrument of progress and yet mill's faith in government had limits of decisive and far-reaching application a one limit lay deeply rooted in an all but aristocratic distrust of majorities no one has written down the majority not even herbert spencer or sir henry mayne more strenuously than he he places it of course in power a democrat could not do otherwise but no sooner has he done it than catching up the note of alarm from de tocqueville whose democracy in america profoundly influenced his thought he diffuses a terror of majorities and takes every security that ingenuity can devise against the multiplied tyranny of the multitude a tyranny as he reminds us more terrible far than individual despotism as leaving no loophole of escape to its victims like the earlier radicals he hated the despotism of kings and aristocracies But he went beyond them in dreading the despotism of any power even though it was the power of the people hence his defence of government by majority resolves itself into the argument that an unresisted majority is incapable of governing hence his plea for an organized opposition under all forms of government hence in parliamentary reform the greater weight he would give the educated voter hence his almost fanatical plea for the representation of minorities hence his eagerness to welcome suggestions the elaborate scheme of Hare, for example which might shape the representative system so as to counteract the influence of collective mediocrity previous radicals had a deep distrust of rulers this radical had a deep distrust of voters as a radical he was of course bound to believe that somehow the rule of the majority would make for order and progress but he is manifestly convinced that a prime condition of this is that the majority must be withstood to the face his attitude here is characteristically summed up in that singular avowal of his intended policy as member of parliament to expend all the popularity he got from his books in upholding unpopular opinions so firm was his belief that the way to serve the state was to beard the crowd b this was one limit to his faith in legislation the other lay in his doctrine of the inviolability of the individual round every individual life he would have us draw a charmed circle not to be infringed within which each citizen was to do as he pleased without let or hindrance either from law or social pressure all encroachment upon this was his abhorrence and he tried to justify himself by his well-known distinction between acts that affect our neighbours when law may justifiably intervene to protect them and self-regarding acts when law is to be met in all cases by an uncompromising hands-off this distinction is untenable as we shall see but it at any rate satisfied its author. To the last, he remained convinced that there is a large tract of life, the region of self-regarding acts, with which neither law nor administration nor public opinion have anything to do, unless to guard it jealously from invasion. From these two limits upon legislation, the inference is obvious. He who believes in the fallibility not to say the folly of majorities and the inviolability of self-regarding acts is not likely under a democratic dispensation to look for social salvation to government and indeed this comes out clearly in mill's attitude to socialism he was far from unsympathetic here he had emancipated himself from cut-and-dried economic dogmas he did not believe that the laws of distribution were laws of nature, he believed that they were pre-eminently alterable, he wished to alter them, still less did he soothe himself, like Bastia, with the false flattering unction that the economic organism was a self-acting harmony. On the contrary, he made the sorrowful admission that it is doubtful if all our boasted mechanical inventions have lightened the day's toil of a single human being he was always convinced that something radical had to be done. He even recalls a time when he and his wife were not averse to be classed as socialists. Yet he never really moved from his persistent individualism. All the modifications of the existing system for which he fought would still leave it standing strongly built upon private property, private capital, inheritance, contract and competition never even in his most socialistic hour did he forget that as the maladies of society were not ultimately due to human institutions so it was not by even a subversion of human institutions whether political or economic that these maladies could be cured the dangers of poverty and misery remained on his analysis ultimately traceable as we have seen to the niggardliness of nature and the improvidence of man. Even if socialistic legislation abolished private capital, this social revolution would he fear end only in disillusionment. It might burst up the existing form of society, but it would not remedy the evils which, as he thought, were wrongly ascribed to competition. His words in the political economy are explicit, no one can foresee the time when it competition will not be indispensable to progress or again they that is those who charge upon competition the evils of existing society forget that wherever competition is not monopoly is and that monopoly in all its forms is the taxation of the industrious for the support of indolence if not of plunder IT WAS THESE CONVICTIONS THAT TURNED HIS SYMPATHIES SO STRONGLY TO VOLUNTARY COOPERATION. FOR MILL'S INDIVIDUALISM IS NOT ATOMISTIC OR ANARCHIC. SO LONG AS COLLECTIVE ACTION BE VOLUNTARY, FEW ARE READY TO GO FURTHER IN SUPPORT EITHER OF COOPERATION OR OF TRADE'S UNIONISM. END OF SECTION Six.